Our spiritual consciousness is not about learning something new, but rather it's about uncovering what's already there. Sometimes to people it may seem as though something spiritual, um, a new way of life that you have to train yourself into. But what happens is that when you actually begin doing it, you realize, oh my God, this is just so natural and it becomes more and more natural. Hello everyone, welcome to the Experience Podcast. My name is Tejaswa or Tex and together you and I are going to have amazing conversations with amazing people and learn so much through our experiences. This is a listener supported podcast so any level of Patreon subscription or one-time donation will be accepted with a lot of gratitude and used back to making this podcast experience even greater. Before we begin, I just wanted to thank everyone who has been supporting this podcast and my music journey. If you didn't know, I have just released a music album called Ikigai Part 1 Perception, and this was recently played on the BBC radio as well. You can head over to bit.ly slash textikigai or follow the link in the description to find out more. In today's episode, I can't wait to welcome Sutapadas Prabhu. We're going to be talking about what it means to be a monk and what is the mindset behind that lifestyle. But first, let's take a deep breath and close our eyes and reflect on the word renunciation. Maybe it's a feeling, a memory, a person, an environment, or whatever else may come to mind. Keep this thought in mind, maybe write it down on a piece of paper, because we will come back to it later in the episode. If you're comfortable, we'd love to know what you thought of, so please do share with us in the comments below, or feel free to message us. Let's begin. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Experience Podcast. Today with us, we have a very, very, very special guest, His Grace, Sutapadas Prabhu. So for those of you who don't know Sutapadas Prabhu, he is the head monk at the Bhaktivedanta Manor. He has designed and taught some amazing courses, authored so many books that act as a guide to the Vedic scriptures. He is a mentor, a counselor, and also oversees the school of bhakti. Now, this bio does not do any justice to the amazing personality that he is. He's been able to inspire so many of us to dive deeper into spirituality. And he's taken philosophies and concepts that on the surface seem like really complicated things, but he's been able to transform that into bite-sized gems that we've been able to follow on a daily basis. So Prabhu, it is an honor to have you on this podcast and thank you for everything that you're doing for this world. So Prabhu, how are you? It's an honor, Tej, to be with you. And uh, yeah, I was looking forward to this. And um, yeah, it's be wonderful. We can have a little bit of an exchange and yeah, learn a little bit more about spirituality and how it's relevant in the world today. So yeah, looking forward to it. Amazing. So Prabhu, what have you been up to these days? Well, as you know, the world's been in lockdown so for the, since uh, March 2020. 
I've primarily been here at the monastery. We have a beautiful place in northwest London, in Watford, a beautiful monastery um, donated by the Beatles. And I've been a resident here for about 20 years. Wow. Um, so for the last, uh, yeah, for the most part of the last one and a half years, I've, I've been here. And um, and that's been amazing. I've uh, been doing a lot of writing, a lot of studying, a lot of reflection, um, a lot of Zoom calls, <laughs> as we all have. And um, yeah, but in the last month, I guess, um, since things have opened up, I've been traveling a bit more. So I've yeah, been around the country, around the UK, and I just returned from a trip to France. Wow. And I'm on my way to uh, Copenhagen, Denmark tomorrow, uh, day after tomorrow. Yeah. So. Wow. So I, I caught you at a good time then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so probably tell us a little bit about that. What, what What's the what's the motive behind these travels? Eh? I guess um, as a monk, um, one of our major contributions that we try to make to the world is to inject some spiritual wisdom into the equation. I think mm. um, the world we're living in today has technologically advanced, economically advanced, uh, politically advanced. Maybe that's borderline, <laughs> but. <laughs> But definitely with all this advancement, unless there's a simultaneous um, injection of spiritual wisdom that people can really factor into their life in a very practical way, mm. what we'll find is that um, there's more and more conveniences, more and more comfort, more and more outlets of um, pleasure and gratification. But the net result is that people may not feel a deep mm. sense of happiness and satisfaction in their life without spiritual um, values, without spiritual uh, perspectives. So um, so that's what we try to do. We try to go out there in the world and make it accessible, make it relevant, and hopefully make it inspiring. Wow, that's really, really powerful. I remember uh, when you did the Gita Life course, um, one of the th this is one of the things you said. We you said that technologically we've advanced so much and we're getting so many things instantly um, that sometimes we we overdo it and because we're not being mindful of the things we're consuming and doing as well, uh, we often end up getting even more negative than we started out with. And I think that was really powerful. Um, it was it was very eye opening. Yeah. Yeah, they say in the world today, we have more, but we enjoy less. And um, I remember one thing, one of the first monks I ever met, um, one of the things he told me is that um, the richest person is not the one who has the most, but the one who needs the least. And it was such a simple statement, but it's something that hit me in such a way that I thought, oh my God, my whole life, was being planned on having more um and and then i started thinking but how about i plan my life in such a way that i won't need anything externally because i'll be so fulfilled within so it was such a simple statement that rang so true in in terms of my observation of the world that it almost just shifted my perspective entirely wow yeah, this is making me reflect on uh, something Casey Stock uh, Casey Stock started saying a lot. Um, 
there was this poster that started going around when COVID first hit and, you know, we weren't allowed to go outside. And the quote was, you know what I'm about to say, if you can't go outside, go inside. Mm -hmm. I think um, in a lot of ways, as tragic COVID has been for a lot of people, um, it has also presented the opportunity to make us spend more time with ourselves and understand ourselves a little bit more. And I think there are some amazing stories out there that will um, that will tell us that. No, that's really, really powerful, Prabhu. No. I mean, just in terms, sorry to, just in terms of going inside, like mm. it's an interesting thing because um, I, I used to always, for me, it was like when that opportunity arose to explore the inner world, it was like I jumped at it. And, and I always felt like, why, why do others, why doesn't everyone feel like doing that? It's such an mm. amazing thing to explore the inner world. And then what it occurred to me is that um, many people don't have time to go within because the external life is just so crazy. Mm -hmm. So as you mentioned, COVID opened up that time. But um, some people may have time, but they don't go inside because they're almost scared of their inside. You know, we have all this stuff within us, you know, negative thoughts, you know, um, bad qualities and, and we're kind of almost scared that I don't want to start going too deep in exploring my inner world because I don't know what I might uncover and sometimes mm. it feels more depressing when I go inside um, so some people don't have time some people are just scared to go within and I think there are other people who genuinely make time and do want to go in but I think they've never really been um guided or mm. taught as to what it means to go within because it's fine to say like okay Tej like you can't go out go within but what does that mean how does that work what's the process to do that and so um, a lot of what we do with the world is um, encourage people number one make time mm. number two don't be scared about your inner life and your inner demons or your inner things that you feel it's something you can confront and change and overcome. And then the third thing, we try to give people the tools, the tools to really introspect and reflect and, um, and yeah, and, and, and take that journey within. Yeah. The journey within great, great book by, uh, is Grace, uh, rather than that's one, get a chance yeah. to please, please read that book. Um, you know, you talk, we talked about inner demons, Prabhu, and this is something that I feel a lot of people do fear, but it's it's easier to say, um, you know, than to do. At least from my personal experiences as well, it's it's almost like taking a really hard to swallow pill. So what what is what is inside us that's making us so scared to go in? Is it a lie that we've told ourselves in our entire lives? Is it our conditioning that sometimes we Sometimes we question the world and think, am I being lied to the entire time? Like, you know, we've been told to, you know, educate ourselves, get a good job. And while these things may be important, a lot of us make that our entire life. And everything we do starts revolving around that. But a moment where we sort of take a step back or, you know, if just before going to sleep, we have these thoughts that we're like, wait, what am I actually doing? It's really... Um, it's really frightening for, for many of us to, you know, even ask that question. And often at times I feel when we 
even bring this question up, say it out loud in front of our friends or family, they'll be like, ah, oh, just leave it, you know, sleep it off or something like that. What are some of the things we can do to bring that courage up and just go inside? You've probably been in what you've been in quite a few of the sessions that I've conducted and you probably heard me ask the crowd sometimes, what's the biggest lie in the universe, in the world that we're living in today? And people come up with different points. Hmm. And what I share with them is that perhaps the biggest lie in the world is that material facilities, material achievements, material accolades, material positions, material comforts, material arrangements will make me happy. Mm. Um, and every other lie that you see in the world, whether it's a lie by the media, whether it's a lie by your peers, whether it's a lie that, you know, uh, perpetuates generation after generation, all the other lies we see in the world are founded upon this basic lie that material arrangements, material um, situations is what will make me happy. And so when, we, when our life is founded upon that lie, then what happens is within our character, we develop certain traits, we develop certain desires, and we develop a certain vision of the world which... Um, basically degrades degrades us mm -hmm. you know? uh, we think things we don't want to think we say things we don't want to say we do things we don't want to do because we've got these desires these character traits this way of looking at the world which is very much based on the lie that material arrangements will make me happy mm. and so um so therefore, we're kind of scared to go in because we know this is not very nice, but it's me, it's who I've, you know. And most people are scared because they think they can't change it around. But the, the good news um, of the ancient sages, the ancient literatures, is that if you begin to recalibrate your vision and shift your vision from the material to the spiritual, then as you begin to shift that vision to the spiritual, then what you begin to do is within yourself, you begin um, reconfiguring your desires mm. to spiritual, selfless um, ways of you know, functioning. You begin to change your character. Um, from envy, you move to appreciation. From anger, you move to tolerance. From uh, miserliness, you move to generosity from, you know, wherever it may be, uh, lies, you move to truth, you know. So you kind of make this shift in character. And in this way, spirituality really helps you to become the best version of yourself. Um, and, 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 you know, sometimes they say, we, you know, we create a life that looks good on the outside but doesn't mm -hmm. feel very good on the inside. Mm -hmm. um, so by, by pursuing the spiritual path, we beautify the world within and then the world outside of us naturally becomes beautified because whatever is within is created then outside of us. So, um, but it's not an overnight thing. And it takes time. And, and um, 
But it's the greatest adventure. It's the greatest, the most rewarding thing in the world to become the best version of yourself. Mm. Wow. Really powerful. I'd like to share something. Um, I think this is a quote by you, Sutta Prabhu. This is something that Nanda Gopa Prabhu told me that is a quote by you. And I've quoted this uh, in one of my lyrics, actually. You said, material breakdowns lead to spiritual breakthroughs. And um, thanks to you, Prabhu, this is something that has happened to me. And I'm very, very grateful that it happened to me. And it happened to me at such a interesting phase uh, in my life. Um, and, you know, talking again about just going within. Because there's this, um, there's this dust analogy, isn't there? Mm. Where uh, we talk about when we first start when we first open a really dusty room uh, and we enter it, there's dust everywhere and we think, what's going on? But once the dust settles down, settles down, um, we have a much clearer vision. I might have just um, said that really wrong. Would you like to uh, tell us the actual analogy, Prabhu? Well, the, the analogy of a dust is used in different ways. Sometimes mm. the mirror of the heart is compared to dust. Mm. And uh, by spiritual practice, by spiritual meditation, we begin to cleanse the dust from that mirror and we mm. begin to see our real self. Mm. That's one analogy that's often used. Another analogy that's often used is that the heart is like a room, a room in which there's a lot of dust. Mm. And what happens is when you look at a room immediately, it may look pretty clean. But as soon as you begin cleaning, all the dust comes to the surface. And halfway through the cleaning, the, the room looks visibly more untidy, more unclean. But that's the process of cleaning. First, the dust has to come to the surface and then you can take the dust out. Mm. So these are kind of uh, different analogies that are used um, in terms of dust and and. and and, and this is, the dust analogy is interesting because what it's really getting at is that um, our spiritual consciousness is not about learning something new, but rather it's about uncovering what's already there. And this is really, really an important thing to understand that sometimes to people it may seem as though something spiritual um, is almost like an imposition, it's a way of thinking, it's mm. a, a new way of life that you have to train yourself into. But what happens is that when you actually begin doing it, you realize, oh my God, this is just so natural, and it becomes more and more natural. Mm. Um, so, um, so yeah, it's about um, cleansing, cleansing the consciousness, you know. Wow. Um, and, and, you know, like in life, we all like pure things, isn't it? Like pure orange juice, like um, uh, what else? You know, pure, pure gold. Mm. Um, when I was at Pure Silk, there used to be a clubbing event when I was at university called Pure Silk. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, you know, so we all like something pure, right? Something that's um, untainted, uncompromised. Mm. So what can be more powerful than having pure consciousness mm. that's not um, clouded by the dust of uh, material conception? Mm. Um, and just to come back to what you said before about 
how material breakdowns lead to spiritual breakthroughs. See, one of the biggest problems in life is that we don't like to change. Mm. You know, like change is so uncomfortable for people. There's a very few personality types who just jump at the opportunity for change. For most people, it's difficult. So the way the world is um, wired, if you like, is that ultimately very, in most people's life, challenging situations will come. Mm. And when those challenging situations come, sometimes they can be so intense that they almost seem as though they're breaking you down. But what those situations do is they cause somewhat of a material breakdown um, to give you the impetus to have a spiritual breakthrough. Mm. Because um, without that impetus of our own volition and our own um, initiative, we may never go there, you know? Um, so, yeah, if someone, you know, like you got all your viewers out there and if... If someone's going through a point of, you know, existential confusion, um, sometimes we can say even depression or, mm. you know, a real sense of um, lack of direction or purpose, um, they may feel as though they're breaking down. But if they're able to have the right wisdom, the right people, um, and the right spiritual situation around them, that breakdown leads to a breakthrough. And, and that's really the story of the Bhagavad Gita and the, the main character, Arjuna. Yeah, wow. We, you, you talked about pure consciousness. And I sort of want to link this to your, your early life, let's say. Because I feel like a lot of us, you know, when we think of the word monk, we most probably imagine somebody sitting under a tree wearing some really simple clothes and meditating throughout the day. But how, first of all, how accurate is that description? And second of all, speaking of pure consciousness, when we, when we do think of a monk, we we're probably thinking, wow, they have the most pure consciousness and maybe they were born that way. That's why it's so easy for them to be a monk. I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people who, there's a voice in their head that will say that to them, that, you know, anytime we try to do something good for us or there's somebody else out there who's doing something that we would like to do, we come up with these excuses and there's a voice in our head that tells them, oh, it's easy for them to do, that's why they're doing it. So tell us a little bit also about what your mindset was when you were younger about a monk and was this something that was always on your mind? Yeah. Well, I guess there are different types of monks. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the first type of monk is the reclusive monk. I think that's probably the one that you depicted, you know, the one that goes into a cave or disappears into the forest or you find under, you know, on top of a mountain, away from everyone and mm. very much going within, moving away from the world and going within. Um, those kind of monks become socially dead. Um, they leave society for all intensive purposes and they um, live in seclusion. So that, that's your number one, your reclusive monk. Hmm. And then I would say you get another type of monk, which is uh, an engaged monk, a monk who very much lives within you know, their own sacred space, 
but then engages with the world and tries to share with the world and tries to help people who aren't monks and and tries to add some spirituality to the equation within whatever community they, they're part of. And then I think um, the third type of monk, there are urban monks, you know, who... Um, or, you know, the modern-day monks, which I guess we would come under that category. Like, we, we have the hairstyle, we don the robes, but um, but we kind of spend our, most of our time in cities, um, at universities, in, in different forums, you know, just sharing spiritual knowledge. And, and really, um, not necessarily... Uh, we are renounced, but that's not our focus, renunciation. Our focus is contribution Mm. um and so there are those type of monks um and then i guess there's the monk mindset as well which is um the monk within each and every person uh regardless of where you live and what you do and we can talk maybe about what that monk mindset is Mm. later on so so yeah i guess when i was young i was i was fascinated by monks and uh, yeah, I thought maybe I'd become a reclusive monk, but um, yeah, somehow or other, um, through the teachers I met and through the traditions that I contacted, um, becoming like a, a modern-day monk and um, living within a monastery but engaging with the world, um, uh, it, it really captured my imagination. I, 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 I had a I graduated from UCL. I had a degree in um, computer science and management. I had a had a job um, lined up at 21, but it just wasn't uh, it wasn't inspiring me. It didn't mm. feel like I'd make a difference in the world like that. Not that you can't make a difference like that, but for me, it wasn't sitting right. So I went to India and I just decided to disconnect for some time and. I spent six months traveling and staying in ashrams and it became very clear to me that um, my calling was different. I Mm. I came back to London, I was 21, I moved into the monastery here. Um, And as the years went by, I began to realize that um, somehow or other, by some incredible great fortune, I'd stumbled into a life which somehow or other just worked for me. and so, uh, so I've been a monk ever since for 20 years, and um, it's an energizing life. It has its uh, challenges, as every life does, but, um, but there's every, something to learn every day and, and, and just such great opportunities to give. Um, so, yeah, I became a monk when I was 21. I'm past 40 now. Um, wow. So, yeah, time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> Um, there's one thing you, you, you said, um, the renounced order of life. And I think I'm going to quote you from the Gita life. I think this was one of the conclusions of one of the chapters, uh, which has helped me. Um, and the conclusion was, um, we think that spiritualists don't own anything, but the Gita teaches us that this, uh, that spiritualists aren't owned by anything. Is that right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. People have this kind of stereotyped image of a monk, um, you know, like walking barefoot, you know, like with no possessions and Mm. sleeping under a tree. And um, 
what the Gita really teaches is um, that renunciation is something within. Um, someone can be surrounded by so many material things, but within mm. themselves, if they haven't invested their hopes, their desires for happiness within those things, then they can have those things, mm. but there won't be any attachment. And if there's no attachment, then really they're, they're just as renounced as someone who lives without it. In fact, they may be more renounced mm. than someone who lives without it, who internally wants it. Mm. So, um, so the real renunciation is within, you know, and um, uh, of course, the life of a monk in which you tangibly do let go of many things that has its part to play. Mm -hmm. But in the ultimate sense, um, renunciation and um, yeah, that complete sense of uh, detachment from the world is something very internal. It's not an external thing. Hmm. Amazing. So one of the um, sort of dilemmas that I had, you know, when I first started um, diving deeper into spirituality was, why shouldn't I just give up everything? And, you know, this is obviously, uh, it's such a stereotypical example because this is literally what the Gita is trying to talk about. Mm. Um, you know, Arjun's on the battlefield and he's um, talking to Krishna and he says, I don't want to do this anymore. Why don't I just, you know, go sit on a tree? And Krishna says, no, this is your duty. And um, thanks to some amazing uh, people in my life, um, I was able to get my mind back on track and understand that whatever we do do in life, in our jobs or on a personal level, we can do it in the mood of service. We can do that in the mood of devotional service. And that in itself is so powerful. And Prabhu, you talked about finding spirituality and recalibra recalibrating your yourself in some way, you know, so you might be doing the same thing, but you're doing it for a completely different reason now, mm. you know, mm. and one, one example that I'm very open about now is that I used to do so many things um, because I wanted to be a superstar. You know, mm. I wanted all the attention. I wanted all, you know, all of that good stuff, the spotlight and whatnot. But as I grew older and I, you know, tried putting myself into celebrity shoes, I said, okay, now I do, like, let's say I have this. What now? And the mm. emptiness that I felt after that made me rethink a lot of things. And I'm so happy that, you know, through some divine power, um, I was able to meet some amazing people who got me into KC uh, Sock and eventually the Gita life with you. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a powerful journey. Um, so, Robert, you, you talked about that in your early life, you were fascinated by monks. How did that happen in the first place? Um, a lot of it is inexplicable. And, and the reason is... Um, one of the first teachings of the Gita is that um, this life is just a chapter and um, we've had lives before. Um, we'll continue to live after this life. And according to where we've been before, what we've done and the desires that we've cultivated, we kind of end up in this world, in this body, in this situation with a certain psychological configuration um, based on our previous lives. Some of us are more outgoing, some of us are more grave, some of us 
are naturally tuned into spirituality. So others, it just doesn't connect. So everyone's coming um, with a different mindset based on previous lives. So one of the things that I, I, I detected very early in my life, this life, <laughs> is that um, I had an attraction towards simplicity. Um, I, I, I never wanted to accumulate things. In fact, it became stressful if I had even one extra thing than I really needed. Um, minimalism, living with very little, um, it just felt natural to me. Um, the idea of making money, it, it felt more like a burden than um, something to be enthused about. Um, even wearing a suit and tie was like difficult <laughs> for me, you know. It's just like mm. it felt like just extra unneeded mm. things, um, mm. titles, positions, um, achievements. Uh, it, somehow it just didn't resonate with me mm. so much. Um, so I could see from a young age there was a there was a tendency towards simplicity, um, and of course that must be something to do with my journey before this life. And, and therefore, um, as I began looking into spiritual teachings and, and uh, saints and sages and um, sadhus, as we say in Sanskrit, who turned away from the world and uh, lived with nothing, they became like fascinating people to me because on one hand, I was getting interested in spirituality and on another hand, I always had this sense of simplicity. And so when I found like a spiritual tradition in which I could find my spiritual answers and embrace this kind of inner calling for simplicity, mm -hmm. um, then it just it just came together very perfectly. And and when I became a monk at 21, like Within a very short time, it was just it, it began. It became very clear to me, like, wow, mm. this is this is it. This is what we call in Sanskrit. Um, this is my dharma. This mm. is my calling. This is my purpose. This is my um, what I'm wired for. You know. Um, so yeah, I think it was just a tendency towards simplicity. Um, wow. You know, we've talked about. Dharma a lot actually in in your courses, and um, for people listening in, how would you? What's what's a way that people can find their calling? You know, something yeah. that they're by default tuned into. I usually say three things if you want to find your dharma. Like mm. um, the first thing is you have to analyze the second thing is you have to ask and the third thing is you have to attempt mm. so the first thing is you have to analyze yourself um you know you can do personality tests you can just try to step back look within and and just try to see yourself like what are your strengths what are your weaknesses in what environments do you really thrive in what environments do you struggle what kind of activities naturally resonate with you and what kind of activities are, you know, um, feel alien. Mm -hmm. um, 
as soon as you begin analyzing yourself, understanding your personality better, then you get a sense of what kind of work in this world or what kind of way of life um, would work for you. Hmm. Um, the second thing to do is ask, like have people around you who know you well and ask them, like, what do you think I should do? What do you think my dharma or my calling is? What, from observing me, where do you think I can make a difference in the world? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and their input is good because sometimes what happens is we may be skewed um, because we may have a desire to be like someone else or do what someone else is doing and therefore we convince ourselves that no this is my dharma as well this is my dharma so when you ask someone else because they don't have that bias mm. because they don't have that um you know that that sense of uh they're not swayed by that they can give you a much more neutral detached um outlook or mm. yeah, analysis and then the third thing i say is attempt just try different things if you think your dharma may be to be a teacher and teach, learn teaching, and just try it. And very soon you'll know whether it's you or not. Mm. And so we shouldn't be scared to try other things as well. And um, one of the biggest reasons why people don't find their dharma in this world is because, say, for example, someone has a job, um, it gives them security, it gives them money, it gives them a sense of um, position in the world. Um, it gives a certain stability. And uh, even though the work may be miserable or it, mm. it may not be fulfilling at all, um, they're not willing to attempt new things because they don't want to give up their comfort, security, the money and all that. Um, so we have to. We have to be ready to. If you're, What I tell people is if you're convenience-focused, you will be experience starved. Mm. So if you're just focused on creating a life that's safe, that's secure, that's convenient, that's comfortable, um, then you'll never really find what your dharma is because you'll box yourself into um, mediocrity. So, so yeah, if you want to find your dharma, analyze yourself, ask your friends and attempt different things. And, and, and over time, you'll, it will become very clear. Wow. There is this really nice uh, graph um, for those listening. And there's, uh, it's called the Ikigai. And mm. it means finding your purpose in Japanese. And it's this beautiful concept of uh, four circles coming together. Yes. And um, that is synonymous to, to Dharma. Is that is that right to say, Prabhu? Yeah, it, it, Dharma is a concept. It, it, dharma literally means that which sustains. Hmm. It means the very essence of your being. It means the very thing that if you lost that, you would cease to be you. Um, so like the Dharma of salt is to be salty. The Dharma of sugar is to be sweet. Hmm. The Dharma of water is to be fluid. The Dharma hmm. of fire is to burn. Hmm. Um if you ever came across fire that doesn't burn, it wouldn't be fire mm-hmm. because that's its very essence. So, um, yeah, whether we call it dharma, whether ikigai, or there are many concepts that draw on the same thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, find the things you're good at and find the things which um, 
capture your imagination and find the things that the world needs and where there's the intersection of all of those things is basically your dharma and contribution to the world. Amazing. Speaking of dharma, um, I'm going to share this uh, conversation that you and I had about a year ago. Um, and and the, I was in a bit of a um, existential crisis, I would say, and there was just everything in my head was collapsing. My my entire model of the world collapsed inside my head. Mm-hmm. And the reason was, uh, so um, Sutapa Prabhu was giving this class on the Bhagavad Gita called Gita Life, and that ran for three months? Yeah, so like ten weeks, yeah. Ten weeks. Um, and that was honestly summer well spent. So every Saturday for about three hours, we'd wake up, and grab some um, herbal tea, have some yeah. breakfast, and, and just listen to Sutra Prabhu talk. And a lot of the things that Prabhu said kept resonating with me because he was able to take these seemingly complex philosophies and turn them into you know something very relatable. And I sort of looked at my life and all my fears that started accumulating the year before that started surfacing. And now the question was, okay, um, I'm in the UK, I have an Indian passport, and I need a visa to stay in the UK. But most, do you remember this conversation? Mm. Yeah, and most of the companies that are offering a visa don't seem like places that I could contribute to the world in. Um, and I remember having this conversation with you and you said, okay, are there any other things that you like doing? I said, yeah, I, I really like music, but I can't make a living off of it yet. You know, and I want to start this podcast, but I don't even know what's going to go there. And there was loads of negativity in my head. Um, and I remember telling you what I eventually wanted to do, which was sort of change the mindset of the world, you know, create a very positive impact and form this bridge between the way people are currently thinking from a very, maybe a very selfish perspective and go more towards, you know, selflessness and um, more spiritual focus. By the time, even those words didn't exist in my vocabulary. Mm. And um, Prabhu, you told me, I know you're the kind of kid who wants to change the world, but if you want to change the world, you need to know how it works first. Um, And you said, you know, there's nothing wrong with applying to these companies. There's nothing wrong with working there. And if you think that um, that's not where your life is headed, that's okay because you would have gained so much experience out of it. And from that experience, you can do so many amazing things. The decision is yours. And Mm -hmm. that really, you know, that removed that really negative brick wall inside my head Mm -hmm. that was stopping me from even wholeheartedly applying to these places. Mm. Um, gratefully thankfully I have a job now and you know I've moved to Manchester and I honestly thank you so much for that but I'm not the only one who goes through things like this almost Mm. everybody at some point in their life not even once maybe many many times they'll have this sort of moment and they say okay first of all I don't even know what to do and once we figure out what to do, then there was this entire process of applying, getting rejected 50 times, you know, and that sort of is like a slap to your ego, you know, mm-hmm. but it's one of the things that I think really needed to happen in my life personally. So often some it feels like every time we try taking a step in the right direction, we're um, 
we face these sort of barriers and these are barriers that we didn't even know existed and let alone have the strength to overcome these barriers. What are some of the things that we can do to, first of all, identify that these barriers exist, acknowledge their presence, because if we're in denial, then that's a whole different side. So acknowledge them, but also how do we find the strength to overcome these barriers? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I can't remember who it was, maybe it was a British Prime Minister, but he said if a path has no obstacles, it probably doesn't lead anywhere significant. So I think the first and foremost is when you walk a path and there mm. are obstacles, you can understand you're, you're heading somewhere significant. Like when I became a monk, I, I was it, there were many obstacles, um, intense obstacles to adopting that life um, and even to this day, when I look back, I'm not quite sure how I overcame them. Um, I didn't think I had that strength, but somehow I did. And I could see that um, those obstacles were, were on a path which were really taking me somewhere, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is what I would say. Uh, we have a very famous, uh, very famous uh, Stephen, no, 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 uh, Simon Sinek, who's written this uh this book start with why mm. um, and it's interesting because the vedanta sutra which are the um you know the some of the most essential literatures in like the vedic philosophy um they they begin with the aphorism atato brahma jigyasa and now you have the human form of life uh, ask, inquire, and question why. Mm. So, you see, most people, they stall on their life path because in reality, they don't know where their life path is going. So when you don't know where your life path is going and you experience obstacles on that path, you have no energy, you have no momentum, you have no really compelling reason to say like, whatever it takes, I'm going to get through this. Hmm. Because you also don't know, like, where am I even going with this? Better maybe I just give up, you know. But when you begin with a very strong why, a why that's intellectually convinced you, a why that's emotionally moved you, and a why that spiritually resonates with you, then when you've got that why, it becomes a North Star, and Mm. it becomes the thing that you keep pursuing. And because you've instilled it in such a deep place within your consciousness, whatever may you encounter along the way, it almost becomes like, you know, obstacles are what you see when you take your eyes off the goal. But if you have no goal, if you have no why, if you have no compelling future that's captured your imagination, then you have nothing to focus on. And if you have nothing to focus on, then you will focus on the obstacle and the obstacle will consume you. Mm. So the real problem in the world is that most people, um, Martin Luther King, he said, we have guided missiles and misguided men. Wow. Wow. So so it's almost like we have all this amazing stuff going on in the world technologically, um, but people have no vision. People have no vision about their life. Where am I going? Where am I going to be in 20 years' time? It's almost like they're just 
falling into a default trajectory that's been dictated to them by society. Um, and, and therefore, you know, obstacles become problematic because they mm. don't also know where they're going. Mm. So for me, that was really what was so important. Like, um, and, and that's really what the Gita is like. The world teaches you act now, ask questions later. Like religion, spirituality, God, all of those things you ask later in your life once mm. you've like earned money, got been successful, <laughs> all of that. Like you ask those questions when you're about to die. Mm. But the Gita says, ask first and act later. In other words, ask the big questions first and mm. find the big answers first, because then that drives your life trajectory and it creates a very strong why. So I think one of the biggest problems in the world is that people haven't, they don't start with why. Um, and, and therefore everything else becomes um, difficult. Yeah, yeah. I think mean, this is so relatable, you know, yeah. um, and I'm sure everyone listening in agrees as well. I think... Um, the why aspect is so important and it's something we overlook a lot because I think the phrase you used is the phrase you used here was uh, dictated by society, mm. you know, and this so, sort of uh, subconscious conditioning that we almost have. Maybe it's expectations from people we grew up with or, you know, things like that. Cause I personally had a really tough time, um, you know, people around me when I grew up, when I was growing up, a lot of people were like, oh, don't do this, go back and study, you know. I was like, no, I want to work on Rubik's Cubes. They're like, that's useless, go and, you know, study for exams and stuff. And I really had to fight through so much of that. And I mean, it's no surprise to me that, you know, uh, that Rubik's Cube thing was the reason I ended up in the UK. And from there, you know, I found Imperial and Casey Sock and so on. But it was always asking that why question. But Prabhu, sometimes we ask this question and the answer is nowhere to be found. Are we looking in the wrong direction? Well, the first thing is that um, we, we, we have to make a serious attempt. Hmm. Um, I mean, the famous Christian aphorism is seek and thee shall find. And really, most of most people um, are not really seeking the answer. Um, from a spiritual point of view, we, we got to start with the, um, the faith that if there was, maybe trust is a better word, the trust that if there is a conscious, sentient, um, supreme entity out there that I'm meant to find, mm. then if I'm sincerely endeavoring to connect, um, the universe will conspire in such a way as to bring me to the answers I need to find. So the first thing is we have to become sincere seekers. Wow. Um, and, and that's not such an easy thing, you know, because in the world today, our consciousness, our attention is hijacked by a million and one things. But it's got to come to the point where um, one is really 
sincerely seeking. Um, you know, like um, I once was walking down the high road and I, and I was and someone came out of a travel agent and they and they had like a stack of um, uh, holiday brochures, like literally a stack up to their chin. And what occurred to me is that this person probably has about like three weeks off in a year or something, and they're going to do the research to find out which is the best place to go because, you know, they, they want to make sure they spend those three weeks, like max it out the best they can. Mm. And I thought for a three-week holiday, I'm like, how much research does someone do? But when it comes to like, the questions of who am I? What happens after death? Is there a deeper meaning to life? Is there a God out there? And what's he like? It's almost like we're not even willing to read a book. You know, we're not even willing to, you know, dedicate time and energy to go to spiritual places, meet spiritual people and find mm. these are the biggest questions, the most kind of, um, but who's investing that time, you know? So I think, um, when we invest time, not just time, but when we invest our heart in really trying to find, um, then then we'll see that answers do start coming about. Um, and uh, and another thing is that um, the spiritual knowledge um, isn't simply grasped by in an intellectual way. Hmm. So uh, it, it's something that we seek, it's something that then makes sense, but it's then something that we internalize and live, which then brings about a higher um, realization, if you like, of that um, knowledge. Hmm. So, so the point I'm basically making is it's a process. Um, finding that why, finding that ultimate reason why you exist, is a process, and it's a process which requires great sincerity, focus, and uh, ultimately patience as well. Um, wow. Thank you. Thank you for that, Prabhu. Um, I just thought I'd share um, something. You know, when we, when we talk about finding these answers, um, at least the first time I went on this journey, I thought I need to stop doing everything I'm doing, sit down and think about it. And then I'll find the answer. <laughs> um, and I was quite wrong. Um, I think there, there is obviously um, power in sitting down and reflecting on it. But I somehow, through association and through reading Vedic uh, scriptures and um, attending courses, I started finding answers at least a few of them in the everyday things that we were doing. And mm -hmm. that started becoming relatable. And uh, I don't know, I, I, I just think it was really, really powerful. So do you think it's um, the first step, you know, before we, before we end this, the first step is to surround yourself with people who are trying to think about the same thing, the same things and walk down a similar path to you. Yeah. Well, um, 
someone used to say to me, uh, if you're the smartest person in the room, you need to change room, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and the point he was making is that you need to surround yourself with people who, who challenge you. But challenge you to do what? Challenge you to learn more, dream more, do more, become more, achieve more, and, uh, and find more. And, and so I think that's why being around spiritual people is so powerful. Not because, okay, we're all spiritual and we're all in the in club and, and we're going to now, you know, we don't want to know about anyone else. It's not, we're not trying to create an elite group here. But the reason why surrounding yourself with spiritual people is so powerful is because they're the ones who are going to help you expand your vision of what your life can and should be. Um, if you surround yourself with materialistic people, um, you're not going to break out of the box. Mm. You're not going to break out of the invisible boundaries that the world has created for you within the biggest lie in the universe that material arrangements will make you happy. You're not going to be able to penetrate beyond that small world. Mm. Um, so when we say associate with spiritual people, um, it's not about creating an elitist club or, you know, looking down on others. Or, but basically you want to surround yourself with people who are just going to challenge you because, you know, life is valuable. Life is precious. Yeah. And, um, you know, what are we going to use it for? We, you know, like, you know, like here's an iPhone and, and, and I could use this as a door stopper if I wanted to, and it would probably work pretty well. But there's, you know, there's 108 better things you can do with an iPhone than use it as a door stopper. Mm. So life is valuable. We have, we have this, you know, this advanced intelligence, this ability to penetrate beyond just what we immediately see and discover, explore. So we need to be around people who are going to bring that out and who are going to fan that and who are going to challenge us and say, what you're doing now, you can do much more. Um, and so, yeah, definitely, I think you're right. You know, I, If I have made any progress, or hopefully have made some progress on the journey, I really put it down to um, the people that I was with, because I, I think they just, um, they challenged me. And, and, and it was, admittedly, it was uncomfortable sometimes. Of course. <laughs> but it was good. I looked back and I thought, thank God I had those people around me. Thank you so much for sharing that, Prabhu, because all my so-called achievements that I've been, I've had in the past two years, I always say a lot of it is thanks to the people I surrounded myself with from Imperial Casey Sock. And so if, um, if there are any students out here who are going to university, and especially if you're in the UK, um, chances are there might be a Casey Sock in your university. Um, and it's never, never too late to join. Just keep an open mind, try the society out, talk to the people, and honestly, enjoy their company. They, at least to me, when I entered that society, I was so skeptical i was very like i don't want anything to do with religion and things like that but 
wow, when I just spent time with these people, these were the only people I wanted to spend my time with. Mm. And, uh, you know, purely just in their association, I feel like I've grown a lot, um, you know, and there are always ways um, to find uh, people in your life who want to be aligned in the same direction as you. So take that initiative. So Sutta Prabhu, thank you so much. Ted, it's been a pleasure. And, and we uh, hope to connect in person soon. Hopefully, definitely, yes. I'll leave some links uh, in the description box below. So you, anybody who wants to follow your website and read uh, your books uh, will be able to do so. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Enjoy your Harry evening. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in, everybody. We really hope you learned something new. Before we end, let's take another moment to reflect on the word renunciation. After this, think about what changed between your feelings before and after the episode. This podcast was created so we can listen to all our stories and learn from each other because there's so much that we all experience in our individual journeys. Being able to have even a small glimpse of someone's journey can add so much perspective to our lives, help us grow together, and be able to better understand ourselves and each other. Despite all our differences, there's so much more that we have in common. This is a listener-supported podcast, so any level of Patreon subscription or one-time donation will be accepted with a lot of gratitude and used back to making this podcast experience even greater. The different subscriptions can be found on my Patreon page, which will be linked in the description. This was recorded during COVID times with little to no professional equipment, so the quality may sometimes vary. We apologize for this inconvenience, but despite that, we hope you were able to connect with the message of this episode. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope to see you next week. Take care.